Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. Okay, we're rolling. I'm back in Plenary Session, video edition, joined by Professor Avi Loeb. Professor Loeb is a professor at Harvard University. He's a professor of astrophysics. He was the past and longest serving chair of the department. He's the author of a new book, which I've had the pleasure to read, Extraterrestrial by Avi Loeb. Uh, professor Loeb, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Oh boy, you know, I um, somebody tipped me off. They said, you know what? You're gonna like to listen to this podcast. And they gave me a link to you talking on a different show. And I listened and I listened twice uh, because you know, everything you were saying resonated with me so deeply. Um, both, uh, I was fascinated by your topic of study and your way of approach and also all of the things about the academy. But I wonder if we might just start with your topic of study first, because you're the author of this new book. It's called Extraterrestrial. It's, um, it's a super interesting book, and, and it's based on an interstellar object that passed through our solar system. So I wonder if you might tell us um, how this object was detected, what were the unique characteristics of this object, and how um, you approached this as a scientist and, and thought broadly about all the things it could be. Right. So uh, throughout my career, I worked on um, uh, the, the way the universe started, the first uh, stars, the first light. I worked on black holes. Um, and uh, I pretty much ad adapted the same approach to this object that we will discuss in a minute. And uh, I just followed the evidence. Uh, there was no agenda behind uh, my, my statements. And uh, um, basically, this object looked extremely interesting. Uh, so this was the first object that we discovered close to Earth that came from outside the solar system. And it's sort of like finding an object from the street in your backyard. Uh, you can learn about what's going on on the street uh, without going, needing to visit. Uh, you know, to get to the nearest star with chemical rockets of the type that we launched will take 50,000 years. Mm. So that's the time that elapsed since the first humans left Africa. It's not practical. Um, and... Uh, Therefore, we better examine all the objects that come along. And this was the first one, and uh, we didn't expect it. I wrote uh, the first paper forecasting how many such uh, rocks might uh, come from outer space. And uh, we uh, forecasted that nothing will be found with uh, the telescope in Hawaii that detected this object. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was given the name Oumuamua, which means the scout in the Hawaiian language. And of course, at first, one would uh, assume that uh, it must be a rock of the type of objects we've seen within the solar system before. Uh, and uh, the only problem with that is it didn't look like a comet or an asteroid that we have seen before. It didn't have any cometary tail. Uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply around it and couldn't trace any carbon-based molecules, any dust to very um, tight limits. Um, mm. And so um, it definitely was not a comet. And uh, then astronomers assumed, well, maybe it's just a rock that doesn't evaporate, doesn't have any gas coming off it. Uh, and then as it was tumbling every eight hours, the amount of light uh, reflected from it changed by a factor of 10. Mm -hmm. And that implied that it has a very extreme shape. Mm -hmm. And the best fit to the variation in the light uh, was that of a pancake-shaped object. Um, uh, disc shape, a flat object, uh, which we've never seen before. Um, and then uh, in addition, it exhibited an excess push away from the sun in addition to the force of gravity that acted on it. And uh, the only way to explain that, uh, the force varied inversely with distance squared. And 
I could only think of uh, the reflection of sunlight as the only additional force that can act on it because there was no gas evaporating from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in order for that to be effective, the object had to be very thin, sort of like a sail, except uh, instead of reflecting wind, as you find on a boat, uh, it reflects light. And uh, I should say that in September 2020, just seven months ago, there was another object that exhibited an excess push away from the sun by reflecting sunlight uh, with no cometary tail. And uh, it was discovered by the same telescope and ended up being a rocket booster that we launched into space in 1966. Mm -hmm. And we know that the walls of this uh, rocket booster were very thin, therefore it had a lot of area for its mass, so it could be pushed by reflecting sunlight. So we know that we produced this object, therefore it's artificial, The question is, who produced Oumuamua? Uh, Nature does not produce sails. That's that's fascinating. So, I mean, it sounds to me like the characteristics of this object that uh, drew your attention was the arc it was traveling through the solar system was a unique arc, which suggested it was from interstellar origin. It is it is gaining speed beyond um, the forces of gravity that can be exerting on the object. And the third thing is the way it reflects light uh, means it has an extreme uh, shape. And that extreme shape means that in one in some dimensions, it's very broad and other dimensions is very thin. It has to have some shape like that to have those properties. And right. and you're yeah and and you're basically saying these are the empirical observations. What uh what are the hypotheses that best state these empirical observations? And that is the work of a scientist. Exactly. Well, I was driven by the evidence that implied that it's nothing like we've seen before. And uh, as a testimony to this fact, uh, you can one can look at the other explanations that were proposed. Uh, in the subsequent years uh, after I made this uh, assessment in a scientific paper. So the mainstream astronomers that attended to the anomalies, I mean, most most of my colleagues just ignored the anomalies and said that we don't care so much about the details, uh, business as usual. Mm -hmm. You know, there was actually a a colloquium about this subject at Harvard. And when I left the room together with uh, a colleague of mine that worked on rocks for Mm -hmm. decades, uh, he said, uh, uh, this object is so weird, I wish it never existed. Mm. And to me, that illustrated the approach, uh, uh, the current sort of uh, cultural climate in academia of uh, basically trying to confirm your previous notions rather than uh, being thrilled at the opportunity to discover something new. To me, it's actually an opportunity to learn. You know, when nature tells you something different than you expected, it's actually something to be excited about. Uh, and um, uh, the alternative explanations that were proposed by people that did pay attention to the anomalies were uh, contemplating things that we've never seen before, such as a hydrogen iceberg, a chunk of frozen hydrogen the size of a football field. We've never seen anything like it. Uh, but the idea was that when hydrogen evaporates, we wouldn't see the cometary tail because hydrogen is transparent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the problem with that idea is that such an object would get evaporated very quickly while traveling through interstellar space and absorbing starlight and would not survive the journey. We showed that in a paper. Then there was a suggestion, maybe it's a nitrogen iceberg chipped off the surface of a planet like Pluto. Uh, And then we showed in a scientific paper a couple of weeks ago that um, it's also not... uh, a viable uh, option because uh, the mass budget just requires much more mass than we have in stars in the Milky Way galaxy because the surface of a Pluto-like planet makes up a small fraction of the total mass budget Mm -hmm. of even Pluto. It's just Mm -hmm. the the surface layer of a few percent of the size of Pluto. But then on top of that, you have so much mass beyond the surface of Pluto in the solar system or in other uh, planetary systems. That, that it doesn't really make sense. Uh, the mass budget doesn't make enough, even if you chip off uh, a substantial fraction of all the surfaces of Pluto-like planets around other stars, you just don't get enough uh, Oumuamua-like objects for, for the Pan-STARRS telescope in Hawaii to discover one of them within a few years of the size that we have seen. So um, this also doesn't work out. Then there was a suggestion of a dust cloud, uh, um, a cloud of uh, dust particles that are loosely bound 
so that it's a very lightweight yes. and can be pushed by reflecting sunlight, sort of like a dust bunny. <laughs> and the problem yes. with that is that uh, it will get uh, heated by hundreds of degrees when it gets close to the sun. And it doesn't have the material strength to withstand that heating and maintain its integrity. So in each and every case, there was a major flaw, major issue. And these were the possibilities put on the table as a natural origin. And my point is, if you have to contemplate something we've never seen before uh, in term- for a natural origin, then why not leave on the table the possibility of an artificial origin? Mm. But for some reason, <laughs> my colleagues... Uh, had a very emotional reaction to this uh, and um, simply did not want to consider that possibility. And uh, some of them attacked me personally uh, on this ground, you know, just because I'm suggesting to consider that possibility. I see. Um, so uh, just to just to reiterate the, the facts, the facts of this object that make it unique, the arc was unusual. It's gaining speed. It has a unique uh, uh, ratio of shape um, and uh, it's not shrinking in size. That's the other point that as you observed it passing, it, it, it's not diminishing dramatically in size. Well, in order to explain this excess push, it had to lose about a tenth of its mass if it was a comet. And that's a lot. And usually when a comet loses uh, mass it it does it um, it, it it changes its um, spin period uh-huh. uh, the rotation period it also has a jitter introduced uh, to its orbit and also ice uh, stops uh, sublimating beyond a certain distance from the right. sun mm-hmm. and we haven't seen a sudden drop in the force acting on this object it was very smooth with distance i see even beyond the distance that uh, water ice uh, sublimates uh, uh, so, so it was um, quite unusual, and and then this object also came from a special frame of reference. Um, mm-hmm. It's called the local standard of rest, which is the frame you get to when you average over the motions of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun, sort of like the local parking lot. And uh, uh, the sun, of course, moves relative to that frame at uh, twenty kilometers per second, just like any other star. But this object, Oumuamua was pretty much at rest in that frame. Only one in 500 stars is so much at rest in that frame. And if this object came from another planetary system, it should have inherited the motion of its parent star, but it didn't move in that frame. So that's another very peculiar fact about this object. Altogether, there are about six of them, and I list them and explain them in my book. And if you assign a likelihood of 1% to each of them and you multiply these probabilities, since there are six of them, you end up with one in a trillion a likelihood that it's uh, an object of the type that we envisioned before. Now, my point is, you know, we, no matter what, whether it's artificial or natural, it's something new that we've never seen before. And therefore, getting more evidence, getting more data is essential. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we will learn something about the nurseries that make such objects. Mm-hmm. And uh, we will learn something new about nature, uh, no matter what. And therefore, we should invest uh, in trying to find more objects of the same, which we can. I mean, we found this one in a few years. We will find more in a few years. There will be a new telescope coming online, uh, the Vera Rubin Observatory, much more sensitive than the Panstars telescope that discovered Oumuamua. Uh, within uh, less than three years, and and it will it could it it should be so sensitive that it could detect one Oumuamua-like object every month. And if we get an alert a year in advance before it approaches us, we can send a spacecraft equipped with a camera mm-hmm. that will take a close-up photograph of mm-hmm. that object and by intercepting its orbit. And, uh, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. Right. Uh, in my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of <laughs> words in my book. I wouldn't need to write a book. <laughs> that's a well put. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, I think that that's one bucket of arguments is that you have a bunch of empirical observations you're trying to explain. And that's science. That's just the basis of science. The other bucket of your ob- of your of your analysis, I would say, is um 
taking a sort of a broader and, as you put it, a humble view of the universe. Uh, in the long arc of universe history, we're in a relatively new star system, and yet uh, we are increasingly learning that we are not unique, that there's a number of planets that this equidistant, this sweet spot distance from their own star um, who have existed much longer. And if one starts to think about the probability uh, that we are the only uh, life form in, in the broad universe and the only intelligent life form, uh, one should have some humility to suggest that might not be the case. I wonder why did you walk us through that argument briefly? Yeah. Right. So my point is uh, our starting assumption should be that we are not privileged. We are not special because whenever we thought that we are special, we were wrong. Mm. You know, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle argued that we are at the center of the world, the center of the universe. He had a beautiful model of spheres mm -hmm. centered on us. And uh, for a thousand years, people believed him because it flattered their ego. <laughs> um, and it was a beautiful model, very sophisticated. Unfortunately, it's wrong, as shown by Copernicus and Galileo. Uh, the Earth move, moves around the sun. Mm -hmm. Now, the philosophers at the time of Galileo refused to look through his telescope and put him in house arrest. And all that did was to maintain their ignorance. You know, reality is whatever it is, doesn't care whether we ignore it. The okay. Earth continued to move around the sun in much the same spirit, you know, we can decide to sh uh, shut down the curtains on our windows, never look out and search for neighbors, cosmic neighbors, but they would still be there, mm -hmm. irrespective of whether we find them or not. Mm -hmm. And my point is that scientific knowledge is always good because it allows you to plan your actions in a more informed fashion. Uh, and uh, just keeping our ignorance is not a good idea. And the science is all about finding more, you know, through gathering of evidence, finding the truth rather than relying on our prejudice. Uh, and it doesn't need to be sophisticated. You know, it doesn't need to be mathematically advanced. Uh, it doesn't need to involve fancy uh, considerations. Uh, so it doesn't need to demonstrate that we are smart, you know, and a lot of the scientific activity and academic activity is about demonstrating that you are smart, that you deserve honors, awards. Uh, but that's not what science is about. Science is about trying to understand the world. And, uh, you know, sometimes the world is simple. Uh, sometimes it's not, um, um, it doesn't require complex math to figure it out. And we should find what whatever it is. You know, if Oumuamua is a technological relic, mm -hmm. that's a simple idea. You know, we sent out Voyager 1, Voyager 2, New Horizons into space. The, most of the stars formed billions of years before the sun and could have had technological civilizations similar to ours. And uh, therefore, they, they, even if they perished by now, they could have sent equipment into space that we could find. I call that space archaeology. We can search for those relics. And the best approach is to stay modest, not to assume that you know the answer in advance not to be motivated by your ego to demonstrate necessarily that you are smart or just look at the evidence. If it looks anomalous, let's find more evidence <laughs> to figure out what nature is telling us. You know, science is a dialogue with nature. You have to listen to the evidence. You can't always assume that you know the answer because um, often it makes you uh, even more ignorant. You know, I, I say um, extraordinary conservatism leads to extraordinary ignorance. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I can give you an, an example. I, I visited uh, Mexico a few years ago and uh, went to Chichen Itza, which is uh, a, 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 an ancient city that was occupied by the Mayans. And the tour guide was bragging that the um, astronomers in the Mayan culture uh, had a very high status. Uh, they monitored the sky and politicians at that time, the leaders thought that uh, by knowing where uh, planets are or stars are, uh, you can forecast the future. You can tell whether a war will be won. Mm -hmm. And uh, they just had the wrong idea. But uh, as a result of it, they elevated astronomers to the highest social status. They were called the astronomer priests. Mm -hmm. And they collected uh, exquisite data on planets and stars on the sky. Now, since they were motivated by this idea of astrology, uh, they didn't 
look at the data in different ways. They just assumed that it can be used for political purposes. And as a result, they didn't discover uh, Newton's law of gravity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, when you look at kids, what they do is, you know, they take an object and they start looking at it. They turn it around, look at it from all directions. That's a process of learning. Mm-hmm. You know, we tend to think that kids are doing that just for fun. Mm-hmm. But in fact, they are learning by looking at the object from different directions. And a scientist should also look at any data set from different directions rather than assume that we know the answer in advance and use the data to justify the prejudice that we have. That's well put. Um, so this is where um, I, I really wanted to, to, to talk to you about um, because you know you're 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 in the uh, you're you're in the astronomical sciences, uh, one type of science, a very important science, um, a science where you gaze up into the heavens and you think about very deep, uh, profound questions uh, using all the tools of humanity, including science and mathematics, to think about that. Uh, I work in medicine. Uh, it is a different type of science. Um, we we're we're starting in the same place. We're starting in our in our brains and with our reason. Uh, but we in medicine we look inward. Um, and and looking inward is an is 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 a beauty of its own because the body is marvelously complex and we understand a lot of things, but there are lots of things we don't know. And and some of your thoughts, I think, on the culture of inquiry and science, I think, are transcend. You know, even your field and my field, they apply to all fields. And I wonder if we could talk about that. Um, right. That, you know. Uh, yeah, really, I mean, really interested me. I, I just I'll say a few and maybe get your thoughts on it. Um, you know, one of the beauties of science and and you use the analogy of a child approaching a question is that they enter it into without preconceived notions, open minded to a range of possibilities. But one of the realities of academic politics and of science, the human pursuit of science with our hierarchies and cultures, is that some ideas become um, heretical, become ideas that you ought not think about, you ought not explore, um, because they may not have the right sort of social or political overtones. It varies throughout history. It's been different in different times. Um, and yet, you know, you are somebody who tries to remove yourself from that as, as much as possible and think with the curiosity of a child. Um, we have it in medicine too. We have so many, you know, longstanding dogma that it took a brave and sort of subversive person to question. Um, I wonder if you might talk about that and how, you know, what is it about that, that, that process of being a scientist where to be a good scientist, you kind of have to, ign- you have to believe what people tell you, but also ignore them to some degree. Right. It has to do with uh, removing yourself uh, from uh, this pursuit of knowledge. Uh, it's not about us demonstrating that we are smart. It's more about understanding the world, you know, and that's the way kids approach it. Uh, it's a learning experience, right? So the kids are willing to get bruised. They put skin in the game. Uh-huh. They bump uh, over objects. And, and it's not an issue. If they are wrong, uh, they learn something from it. Uh, and scientists should, should do the same. And I was asked by the Harvard Gazette, you know, the, the Pravda of Harvard University, <laughs> uh, what is the one thing I would like to change about my colleagues? And I said, uh, I would like my colleagues to behave more like kids because something strange happens to these kids when they become tenured in academia. You would think that the purpose of tenure mm-hmm. is to give you job security so that you, 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 you could take risks and innovate. But instead, what happens after you get tenured very often is that you get attached to yourself and you, you are in pursuit of honors, awards, recognition. You want to preserve an image of someone that doesn't make mistakes. And the way not to make mistakes is to repeat your mantras, to basically create a, an echo chamber around you with students and postdocs that repeat what you already found in the past without taking any risks. That, that's the safe place to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you can get awards and recognition for past work. Another approach, which is taken nowadays by theoretical physicists, is basically to do mathematical gymnastics that will never be tested the viability of the ideas that they explore will never be tested by experiments. So as long as it's mathematically consistent, just like pure mathematics, then uh, you can demonstrate that you are smart, claim that you are a physicist because you are dealing with some concept that may relate to reality, but at the same time, you are not being tested against experimental data, and then you will never be proven wrong. You know, Albert Einstein, the most celebrated physicist, Uh, of the last century, 
made three mistakes in the last decade of his career. He argued that uh, gravitational waves do not exist, argued that black holes uh, do not exist, and argued that quantum mechanics should not have spooky action at a distance. And all three claims were proven wrong by subsequent uh, experiments. And all that this shows is that when you work at the frontier, sometimes you make mistakes uh, because you cannot really tell in advance which is the right path. And unless you're willing to make mistakes, you will not make discoveries. Unless you allow yourself to find wonderful things, you will never discover them. And um, there is an important lesson that we can learn from kids about that. Now, um, you may ask, why is it that in academia, you have less innovation than you find in the private sector? After all, the private sector, the commercial sector, is really um, after profit. Mm -hmm. And academia is supposed to be non-profit. Mm -hmm. So how is it possible that if someone is after profit, it cultivates a culture of blue sky uh, research? The answer is that sometimes... <laughs> blue sky research leads to major benefits and you know even uh, albert einstein's theory of uh, gravity ended up uh, producing the gps systems that we have without the precision uh, einstein designed it just to explore the universe it ended up being necessary to get the precision we have in navigation systems and uh, he would never have forecasted that within uh, a century that's what will happen quantum mechanics ended up ex being extremely useful even though originally it was uh, quite hypothetical and not uh, really connected to daily lives um, so uh, what the commercial sector recognizes is taking risks is essential you have to allow yourself to make mistakes because if you go in a path that was not explored before and you end up finding making a discovery it it it, it more than compensates for all the wrong paths that you took right. uh, in other directions and i think that should be the innovation culture that is encouraged uh, in academia but it's not and um, uh, you may ask yourself how can we change it well one way to change it is to have uh, young people enter the halls of academia with a different approach. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the reason I wrote my book, to encourage the younger generation. Because, you know, when you look at the French Revolution, you wouldn't expect um, Marie Antoinette to embrace the principles of the French Revolution because she benefited from the old system. Mm -hmm. So the current culture benefits some people that are conservative, that, that uh, created this system. And they will not change it because what any change would mean that they would lose their power. The analogy that I see between, you know, what you talk about and, and my sphere of work is, um, you know, you make the good point that um, you only get so far in astronomy thinking about or in physics thinking about things without empirical data. And in medicine, I, I always say, you only get so far with theories about what benefits people without randomized prospective experiments. You know, so we, we do something different. Um, but we, over and over in the history of medicine, there are people who come and they say, I know the ticket for whatever malady, whatever ailment, whatever problem, just do this. And in fact, I've done it in 50 people. They're doing better than how I'd expect them to do. Of course, this is the way forward. They use their charisma that way. But they don't ask that question that a scientist would ask, which I think is, well, what if you assign them randomly to this or the thing you're usually doing and let's see what happens. Um, in your line of work, it's it's you start with the data before you theorize. Um, in our line of work, we theorize and sometimes we collect the data on the back end. But they're both similar in the sense that um, thinking without data is is uh, is not is is, is it, you can only get so far. You need data, empirical data. I wonder if you talk about that. Yeah, I think that's essential because I mean, let me illustrate that with an extreme example. There are uh, some people that argue that um, you know we live in a simulation or other theoretical physicists argue that we live in a multiverse uh, which we cannot access because it's outside the region that we can observe and you know um, to me that sounds like hallucination because if you can't <laughs> test it I mean it's like being high on drugs in yeah. a way because uh, let's imagine that we are the wealthiest people in the world that's a happy thought and it's a beautiful thought and, you know, we can be very happy thinking about it. 
but then when we go to the ATM machine to uh, cash out on our dreams, we will find out that we cannot. Uh, so that's equivalent to doing the experiment, right? That's getting feedback from reality. And it's really essential. It's not a nuance. It's not uh, just another detail that you add to the equation. It's, it's actually the essence of uh, being real, uh, the ability to get feedback from reality and, and to check whether your idea is right or wrong. So I had a, a very short debate with uh, Brian Green about string theory, for example, a, a few weeks ago, where, where I asked him what, you know, the, the community of string theorists are, are not putting skin in the game. They are not making a prediction uh, that it's if it's proven wrong, could falsify string theory. Right. Uh, they would obviously say that everything they do is consistent with what we know, but actually putting skin in the game means that you say, if you find this in an experiment, it will show that my ideas are wrong. Right. That's the Correct. key. Correct. And they don't do that. Right. And he said, well, you know, it's a long project. It's like building a Stradivarius. Mm. And uh, my point is, if this project takes longer than your lifetime, <laughs> yeah. then how would you ever know that you didn't waste mm. your time working on that? Now, it could be a personal choice, but nevertheless, you know, as scientists, we have to be responsible in some sense. You know, if we claim that uh, this research is part of physics, there needs to be some experimental test that would give us the confidence that we should dedicate our lives to this. Because otherwise, how different is it from some um, philosophical questions like how many angels can sit on the tip of a pin, you know, or um, yes. to me, Science. You know, in a way, I mean, I, I can even take it to be more extreme. It's, um, you know, Bernie Madoff promised a lot of people to give them more money than they give him, right? <laughs> and that was a beautiful idea. And people believed him. He was very convincing. And eventually, when they asked to cash back their money, he couldn't deliver. Yeah. So what was the outcome? He was put in jail. Now, you may, obviously, if during his lifetime nobody would ask for the money back, Yes. then yes. this idea would have been very satisfying both to him and yes. to them. Yes. So experimental tests, you know, putting skin in the game, verifying whether your ideas are right or wrong is not a nuance. It's really the essence of doing science. Yes, I agree. And um, without getting too much on a tangent, but I think, um, you know, this last year has been very eventful and there've been many, many things done. And uh, some of those things that they'll forever be uncertain as to their full effect size. And I think that's a shame. Um, but I wanted to ask you about this idea of, um, you know, among scientists who are very smart, um, there are people who I think I, 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 you know, I certainly have deep respect for. I think they're very bright. They're very smart. Um, but, but many people succumb to holding views and beliefs very consistent with their peers. And I think about all the personality traits that go into being a good scientist. And I think being intelligent, being meticulous, um, being willing to admit you're right, willing to admit you're wrong, uh, those are all key traits. But the other trait that always slips into my mind is the trait of defiance. And by that, I just simply mean that, you know, sometimes um, many people who are defined are wrong, that's sure. Uh, but you need a few people defined to at least offer alternative ideas and explanations. And that is a personality trait that all of the things we do in the academy to get to this position, the chair you once held, you know, they, they weed out that personality trait. And yet that's sometimes the most crucial. I wonder if you might talk about that. That, right. that Yeah. Yeah. So the analogy of, I make is with seashells on the beach. You know, when they rub against each other, eventually they become indistinguishable. Even if they start from being very different from each other, having different colors, different shapes, once they rub against each other because of passing waves, yeah. uh, those seashells break up into indistinguishable grains of sand. And if you were to rub against people throughout your career, you will become indistinguishable and from all the other grains of sand. Uh -huh. And that's what happens on social media. That's what happens in the culture where you need the approval of committees uh, for your views. Yes. But the whole point of tenure in academia is to say, here is a milestone. Beyond that milestone, once you reach that milestone, you know, before that you depend on committees, after you reach it, you don't. 
you should be able to speak out, to take risks, and to deviate from the beaten path. Uh, just like Robert Frost uh, said, uh, you know, that there were two paths that uh, he could have taken uh, in the woods, and he selected the one that was not taken by others, and that made all the difference. And so you, are, you should be allowed to take that path without being ridiculed on Twitter, mm-hmm. without uh, being looked at as if what is he or she doing? How is that, uh, you know, uh, we, we, uh, without the papers being rejected just based on uh, what the group think uh, is about? And, um, you know, that's, I think, uh, the lifeblood of innovation. It's the lifeblood of discovery. Uh, I can give many examples of ideas that were unpopular at the time when they were conceived and ended up changing the face of astronomy or science more generally. Uh, One of them is the existence of planets around other stars. You know, that was ridiculed when I was a postdoc. And um, and another is gravitational wave astrophysics that won the Nobel. Both of them won the Nobel Prize recently in recent years. Um, And, you know, there are many more. uh, Quasi Crystals is another one, a Nobel Prize in Chemistry, uh, 2011, uh, was ridiculed by the mainstream. Uh, and um, there are many examples like that, and you somehow have to persevere. But my point is, for any baby that was born despite of the ridicule, right. uh, there must be a lot of babies that were never born. Right. Ideas that are relevant and correct that were dismissed by the mainstream. And that's where we lose uh, because the progress of science is slowed down. And uh, you want an environment that cultivates innovation, that doesn't punish people for deviating from the beaten path, that actually uh, provides awards or or, um, uh, funding. Uh, You know, a fraction of the funding should go into channels that are risky. You know, the argument of selection committees is usually we don't want to waste pay, uh, taxpayers' money uh, by funding risky propositions. Uh, that's exactly opposite to what the commercial sector right. is saying. Actually, you do want to allocate a fraction of the funding in that direction so that it will pay even more for the rest of the effort that is boring and uninteresting and doesn't really pioneer anything. Um, and uh, uh, so that's uh, the change that one needs. And um, um, so what is wrong and how can we fix it? Well, I think, first of all, uh, it, there should be a recognition that a fraction of the funding should go into risky propositions. There should be uh, more rewards given to people that dare to think differently mm-hmm. rather than rewarding people that maintain the mainstream. And there should be a change in the culture, you know, just like in basketball, the coaches often say, keep your eyes on the ball, not on the audience. (laughs) In much the same way, people in academia should say, let's look at the evidence, not at each other, you know, rather than, it's not an issue of being popular, you know, uh, that is a lesson you learn from the days of Galileo, from Einstein. You know, Einstein, there was a book in uh, the early 1930s uh, that uh, was titled 100 Authors Against Albert Einstein. Mm-hmm. It was in German. And uh, Einstein was asked about it, and he said, uh, well, if there is anything wrong with my theory of relativity, one author would be sufficient. It's not about a group thing. You know, you should be able to express the argument on your own. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, yes. that's the yes. way science is done. It's uh, seeking uh, a, a truth by looking at the evidence in, from different directions. And and um, especially, you know, a lot of the innovation comes from young people, you yes. see. And the real problem in the current culture is that it discourages young people from deviating from the beaten path. Yes. So I wrote this book. I get lots of emails from young people that say to me, you, uh, you know, I, I truly believe in what you're saying and I agree with you, but I'm afraid to speak out because of the consequences uh, for my career. Yes. And some even tenured people are telling me that. Yes. And that should not be the case because every time you ridicule someone that deviates, you are basically suppressing innovation of many other people that look and measure what the consequences might be for them if they deviate. And it's sort of, you know, the, the psychological 
method that is used by cults or by right, groups right, right. that want to maintain uh, discipline. Yes. Uh, and yes. really, science is not about discipline. Science yes. is supposed to be about, you know, thinking openly about possible interpretations of the evidence. Yes. So, I mean, that's very well said. And, um, you know, one of the things you said about your field, of course, were there were people who had ultimately meritorious ideas that were ridiculed in their time uh, and they turned out to be right. We have that too in medicine. We have it to some degree. I mean, there's a class of drugs that have revolutionized cancer. There's checkpoint inhibitors. You go back 15 years ago and the guy who won the Nobel Prize four years ago, Jim Allison, he said he couldn't get funding. People laughed at him. You know, that's what he's told me. Um, we also have the flip side with where the many things we did in the name of health, uh, you know, throughout the history of medicine, many things we thought were making people better off and they turned out not to work. And actually, the, the interesting thing about medicine, of course, is that there are more ways of being dead than there are of being alive. And that of all the things you could do, you're much more likely to harm something, the exquisite product of evolution, than you are to improve upon it. And so if you were to bet, you know, you'd bet against somebody and you'd bet that the thing you're doing is that's never been proven actually doesn't work. I mean, and, and that's a lot of my work. Um, you talk about something that I think is really interesting to me, which is um, this idea that it is a psychological tactic um, to, to ridicule, to attack, to shame. Um, I guess I, I want to come to that in a second, but I guess I want to say that, you know, one thing that I think is very interesting about your book is there is an unspoken wall in your field. I, I, I would imagine. And I think in society that of all the things you're free to think about the idea that there's another, uh, civilization at some point in the universe that was capable of producing intel intelligent things and designing objects, that's a taboo thing you can't think about. There are many such taboos in biomedicine uh, we, we, um, we're facing. I mean, uh, I don't know the answer to this question. It's not a question I'm very interested in. Um, but one question was, where's the origin of the virus? Is it a lab leak or is it a naturally occurring virus? And I think, you know, if you're perfectly honest, actually, there, there, to some degree, it might be indistinguishable. There's no perfect gold standard test to separate the two. You can sequence the virus, but if it was a natural virus in a lab that leaked, it would be no difference. But I mean... But yeah. it has the huge implications for policy. Because exactly. You realize yes. that it came yes. from the lab, then yes. uh, you need to devise a policy that it will never happen again. Exactly. That's and I think. Yeah, no, no, but I, I think that's that's spot on. And and that's also why having that the mental taboo that you can't even think about it is a potentially problematic because it will prevent you from potentially useful policy solutions. Um, right. uh, but but uh, uh, my hope is that the, uh, if there is enough data collected about what really happened, that it will be figured out because, you know, there the are two aspects to it, as we just mentioned, the policy aspect of how to respond to it and prevent it from happening in the future. But there is also the, the, the question of um, if this virus behaved differently than uh, a natural um, uh, virus, then, uh, you know, the, the risk factor could be greater because maybe it mutates in a different way than a naturally occurring virus and it, it behaves differently. So, so the long-term implications could be quite different. It's like getting a genie out of the bottle. If you produce it artificially, it could have properties that nature never uh, realized before. That wouldn't have survived selection pressures. Yeah. Um, I, I've, I had uh, Francois Boulot, who was uh, the director of Univers University College London Genomics Institute and does uh, infectious disease genomics. And he talked about some of this stuff in a prior episode. But I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I mean, more more than this, the thing. I mean, your point is clear, which is that the question, although taboo, has implications. And, and if it has implications, it ought not be taboo. I mean, I think that's the point. And in your and your question, too, this object did pass through for a brief period of time where it came from has a different implications. Um, and if we put our heads in the sand, we'll never know where it came from. And if we're not asked a question, we'll never know where it came from. Similarly, you know, there've been a number of policy responses to this pandemic that um, are naturally disputed because in the history of human civilization, we've never done these sorts of policy responses. And so, you know, I once saw somebody who said, you know, I never would have expected that professors at Oxford, Harvard, and Stanford would have disagreed with this policy response. And I said, you, I said, that's the opposite of what you would have expected because if you do something unprecedented, it is natural that smart people will disagree inherently. It's uh, unprecedented. Well, I think it's a same inflicted wound on the on, on behalf of the scientists because they try to portray an image where uh, you know they you usually have a consensus about the answer, and that's when they speak to the public. But uh, in fact, it's uh, the the opposite. And most of the time, we disagree with each other because there is not enough evidence to give us a conclusive interpretation of the data, and. Uh, 
I think it, it should be made visible to the public that um, uh, it's work in progress most of the time, you know, that, that there are multiple interpretations because the evidence is not strong enough. And we work together to try and figure out what is the correct explanation rather than waiting until we have agreement among us and only then coming out in a press conference that pretty much looks like lectures in a class and telling the public what to do. Um, I do think that uh, transparency is extremely important for gaining the confidence of the public. Science is not an occupation of the elite. It's actually uh, a, a way of life. You know, that's the way we think about any problem uh, in our life. Uh, based on the evidence, we can reach conclusions. Sometimes the evidence is not good enough, so we can't really figure out what the reason was. But but uh, science is a way of life, um, and um, it should have uh, the public's trust. Because yes. most of the time we don't know the answer, but every now and then when we have enough evidence, the public should believe it. Um, the other thing about science that I wanted to really emphasize is uh, it, it's based on cooperation and working together towards understanding what is going on. Um, and, you know, if it, it's different from politics where sometimes you have one nation wanting to feel superior relative to another nation. Uh, and therefore not revealing all the information. So in the case of the virus, it was obvious that, you know, if there was, if scientists were allowed to go to Wuhan early on, then we could have uh, developed the vaccine earlier. And, uh, you know, if we work together, uh, science is an infinite sum game. That's the way I phrase it. Uh, you know, in economics, you have a finite sum, sum game, uh, a zero sum game where if someone gains, another person loses. Science is an infinite sum game where if you gain some knowledge, everyone benefits. Yes. So it's to the advantage of all of us to gain knowledge. You're, you're spot on. And, um, and I think, um, you know, to, to push on this point a little bit is that, um, you know, um, I, I, you know I, I think the media has a challenging position. They've been in the position before where they have felt as if for a scientific debate, um, perhaps about the climate or something, they felt like they gave too much airing to both sides. And in the future, going forward, they don't want to do that again. So they want to make sure they're on the right side. The problem is, as you say, we often don't know the right side. And so this pandemic, um, there was a number of instances where there's a professor at Oxford and there's a randomized control trial of wearing a cloth mask done in Denmark. And this professor of Oxford, he interprets the data in one strongly negative way that it was a negative study. I mean, it is in that's, fact a negative study, but yeah. you know, we can debate. Uh, there, are other, there are many other professors who have a number of reasons why it's a negative study and that they want to interpret it their own way. I'm fine with them. Let's have it out. Let's have in both interpretations. Okay, but they have sought out the social media people. They sought out Facebook and Twitter and Facebook goes and with a big rubber stamp, they say the guy from Oxford, he is false and misleading. You know, they stamp it. And that to me is a threat to science. When you start to let the vagaries of social media comp companies tell professors what they're free to talk about and free to think about, even in an exigent circumstances like the pandemic, it is a threat to what I think we all agree on more than anything, which is the need for these ideas to come into conflict with each other and to talk it out and see what's right. I completely agree. Um, and uh, you know, the, the truth is not decided by how many likes uh, it gets on Twitter. Yeah. It's decided by evidence. And uh, in the scientific process is all about analyzing evidence and eventually reaching a conclusion when, when you have enough evidence, not when you have enough likes on Twitter. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, um, I, I'm very grateful for my wife that uh, asked me not to have any uh, social media accounts uh -huh. when we got married, because that keeps me uh, true to myself and, uh, you know, being guided by my inner compass rather than being influenced by what other people say. And, um, I think it's really important uh, to, to uh, be guided just by the evidence, keep your eyes on the ball, uh, because very often uh, people have an agenda. You know, it could be political, it could be uh, related to the group they belong to, uh, um, and, and you, you want to avoid those. And uh, because, as we discussed before, if you have an agenda, you often do not want to see the evidence because you think you know the answer in advance. And that is a threat to the way science is done. And a debate, a dialogue is completely healthy in the context of finding the truth. Uh, in fact, Socrates <laughs> invented this method of 
you know, asking questions and trying to figure out the nature of things uh, by a dialogue. Unfortunately, you know, he he was uh, uh, judged uh, as being a risk to the education of the youth and asked to to drink poison. Uh, but uh, it shows you that things, you know, nowadays the poison is in the form of uh, uh, the, the, the cancel culture, you know, yeah, on, on I think Twitter. You're right. Yeah. Um, Reputational but, uh, damage is the poison. Is the is the hemlock? Yeah, and and it, it really should be up to the evidence and up to a dialogue to figure out the truth. You know, we should all, all work together. It should not be about personal attacks. Um, and um, I, I think um, you know we should um, somehow distance ourselves from from these uh, likes on social media and 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 pay attention to the evidence. The way science was done before social media was invented. That's well put. You know, I want to ask one one last question. I know time is almost up. Um, my last question is, you know, in, in medicine, we, um, you know, we take care of people and inevitably, despite our best intentions, um, you know, something doesn't go well and something bad happens to someone. And over the last uh, 200 years, you know, even longer, uh, there are uh, these certain types of conferences we call morbidity, mortality conference, where a doctor gets up there and they say, um, this is what happened to somebody I took care of. Um, have at me, you know, tell me all the things that I might've done wrong, where the mistakes I made, what I might've done better. They, they agonize themselves. And I've been there too. You know, you agonize thinking in retrospect, could I have done anything differently? Did I miss something? Did I make a cognitive error? Did I anchor onto an answer when I should have kept an open mind? You ask yourself all these things. Um, we do this in medicine, of course, because the number of instances where we're confronted with a choice with this implication is in the, you know, maybe that 10,000 a year. I mean, it's a certain number. I'm very curious about your line of work. I mean, you're somebody who's thinking about the universe, the stars, and yet, um, you know, there's surely a chance that you have found in your career, maybe for a period of time, you were in, in a wrong way of thinking, or later you saw there's something incorrect about your approach or your thoughts, and you must also agonize just as we agonize about how you might have seen it sooner, how you might have avoided that cognitive trap. But I just wonder if you might talk about that process in your career. You know, what are those, mo what does that look like for an astronomer? Astrophysicist. Yeah, that, that, that's a very interesting uh, issue because, uh, you know, I, I remember that um, when I served in the military, I grew up in Israel, um, the pilots, uh, after every operation, they gather together and talk about the mistakes they've made because the goal is to figure out uh, how to correct it so that in the future, these mistakes will not be made. And so it serves a very important purpose of uh, just looking back and being frank about it, about all the mistakes made. It's a process of learning, right? Now, when you combine it, instead of the military, now you let's shift to academia. In academia, you know, there is a lot of our actions that are guided by our ego. We are trying to uh, gain reputation, to uh, demonstrate that we are smart. And that often is accompanied by denial. Uh, so I can give you some examples. Um, you know, um, the subject of gravitational wave astrophysics, that's a new way of learning about the universe. So usually we collect light with telescopes and that's how we learn what is out there. But uh, in 2015, there was a, a new experimental way of um, uh, looking at the universe that was uh, 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 demonstrated for the first time, and that is gravitational waves. It's ripples in space and time, and you need a very uh, delicate experiment uh, containing lasers uh, to, to, to detect those small ripples in space of and time that are created by the collision of two black holes at the edge of the universe. Okay. Um, and that was demonstrated in 2015, but just a couple of years earlier, I gave a lecture on this frontier at the uh, winter school, and uh, one of the other lecturers, a relatively young person, 20 years younger than me, stood up 10 mi minutes into my lecture and said, why are you wasting the time of these young people on this subject that will never be important in their careers? And that shows you how short-sighted people are. And this experiment was ridiculed by the mainstream of astronomy for many decades, actually. And it was funded thanks to a visionary administrator or administrators in the National Science Foundation. It cost uh, $1.1 billion. And uh, uh, to me, you know, so I would have expected those that opposed uh, this uh, project 
to admit that they were wrong right. after the fact because right. you know we saw gravitational waves and Nobel Prize was awarded. But instead, what I saw is people saying, oh, yeah, of course, why not? Yeah, yeah it's great. Let's celebrate. So I didn't see much of the response of people that say we were wrong. Let's be more open-minded in the future. Um, and the same was true in other circumstances. We don't have time to get into that. But uh, in academia, you know, at least in my field, I don't see people that made one statement early on, you know, ridiculing a subject. And then the subject blossoms uh, and, and demonstrates that they were wrong, coming back and saying we were wrong. What I see is them saying, oh, yeah, that's great. Good to see it. Well, there's and that. I part, mean, yeah. Part of it is because you want to protect your image. You don't right. want to admit that you. But if you go back to this example of the pilots, you know, it's really important because if you admit that you were wrong, then you change your attitude towards the next frontier that looks uh, you know, uh, challenging right now, and you allow yourself to be a little more tolerant, you know, mm -hmm. be more open-minded. Uh, and if you don't admit your mistakes, you, you will never change your way. Fascinating. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's this old joke that, you know, if, uh, you know, uh, everyone, uh, the fir first they laugh at the idea, then they're angry about the idea, and then they said they knew it all along. And it seems some of that is the case. I think, you know, I guess medicine has an immediacy um, the immediacy of you take care of somebody, something bad happens in 24 hours, 48 hours. It's hard to um, evade uh, that confrontation that it was related to what your action is. But in, in, in my research career and in your research career, uh, the distance is there. I mean, there's a distance from the visceral reaction, the person saying, oh, you know, why are you wasting our time with this? And the experimental evidence may come five, six, seven years later. Um, and then in that time, they may have revised their own history in their own mind, you know, the way we do to protect our own ego, as you as you describe. Exactly. Um, and exactly. I think also, and also the other aspect is that it doesn't have immediate influence on people's lives. No. You see, in medicine, uh, yeah. people can die. Yes. Uh, it yes. Has so when you have a remote notion that is not uh, in contact with people's lives, uh, you can pretty much uh, wash it aside. You know, as uh, you, you can just ignore. Yes. Uh, I mean, nobody would notice, so to speak. I, and, I think you're right. I mean, we yeah. as creatures. We, we're evolved to have intuitions about actions that have immediate reaction in days, on the orders of days. We're evolved for certain probability events that we have a very good sense of it's going to rain tomorrow or not. We're very bad at one in 100,000, one in a million, one in 10 million, one in a trillion events. We have a bad way to conceptualize. Right. We have a bad way of thinking about things at tremendous distance in time and in space. And right. we have a bad way of, 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 imagining the things that are beyond what we are familiar with. And I yeah, think and that, that, that explains why we are not taking uh, the political action necessary to uh, deal with the climate yeah. change. Uh, and that also explains why, um, you know, uh, we, we, we are not thinking about the sky very often, yes. even though it can come to haunt us. You know, that's the bigger environment. To me, you know, that's the scientific question of whether we are alone, whether we are the smartest kid on the block. That is this, the question for which the answer would have the biggest influence on our lives, because it's not just problems we have here on Earth. It's, it's going much beyond that. And we have to recognize who our neighbors are, uh, because it will change our perspective about our life, about our aspirations uh, to space, our religious, philosophical beliefs. So I really think that the thinking about the bigger environment is extremely important. You know, the example that I often give is the dinosaurs. You know, they had huge bodies. They were dominant relative to their environment. Nobody threatened them. They ate their grass and uh, had the, their ego boosted on a daily basis. And uh, then uh, one day there was a rock uh, the size of Manhattan Island that showed up uh, 66 million years ago mm -hmm. and they uh, hit the ground and then uh, their ego trip was tarnished uh, yeah. abruptly. Mm -hmm. And uh, it basically uh, killed the three quarters of all life forms on earth. Uh, and so my point is, you know, for a while you can be proud of yourself. You can, you can be ego centered. You can worry only about the grass that is under you so that, and you can feel quite arrogant relative to things around you. But uh, if you are not aware of the bigger environment, um, it will come to haunt you. It's just like someone that is deciding to stay home, not worry about what happens in the world and getting the food uh, from the front door uh, delivered. Uh, but then guess what? Uh, what happens in Wuhan 
would affect your front door as well. So even so, if you don't know about it, uh, you wouldn't behave properly. Avi Loeb, um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I think people will enjoy your book. It is, of course, a reflection on what might be out there in the universe, but it's also a reflection, I think, and what I find most meaningful to me um, uh, in my, you know, in in my work, uh, a reflection on what it means to be a scientist and what it means to do science at this time. And I think people should check it out. It's a very interesting book, um, Professor Loeb. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.